hard to read the Psalms, most of the Psalms, many of the Psalms anyway, without noticing that David had enemies. This is a Psalm of David. He had real flesh and blood enemies. And in this Psalm, he affirms his confident trust in God for protection and deliverance. I won't take the time to read the Psalm again. Thanking Pete for having read that. But um, I chose this Psalm mostly because of verse 4, which has always been uh, an inspiration and a challenge to me. Verse 4, you may recall, or you may have memorized this, you may have memorized this whole psalm. I did once, but I couldn't repeat it now. But David says in verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. As I was thinking about this morning and um, considering as, as, as a, just kind of a thought experiment, what would this psalm sound like to Christians maybe meeting in secret in Afghanistan? What might it sound, sound like to Christians in a house church in North Korea? Or what might it sound like to Christians in a hundred other places in the world where to just be identified as a Christian, to meet together with other believers, is to expose yourself to danger, serious danger. David, who's identified as the author, author, speaks of the Lord as his light and his salvation, the stronghold of his life. Obviously, he takes great comfort in that, as well he should, because David had bloodthirsty enemies. I seriously doubt any of us has enemies who want to kill us, and character assassination on social media doesn't count. Are you there? (laughs) Um, Think about David. Think about when he went into Saul and said, okay, I'll fight that giant. What did he say? I've, I've killed wild animals, bears and lions. And, and then Goliath was after his head. And then he had enemies within his own camp. He had enemies outside Israel who wanted to defeat the army of Israel and would no doubt have um, looked for any chance to be able to take his head back to their home country. So David had real enemies, including King Saul, whose jealousy drove him to want to do away with David as a rival to the throne. And so when David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He had plenty to fear and plenty to be afraid of. But here's, he's here saying, what reason do I have to fear? Because the Lord is there. As the ESV Study Bible puts it, he had enemies, and this is a quote, who would destroy with bloodthirsty and deceitful means. You know, um, we are 
in this culture, in this part of the world, we are pretty insulated from the kinds of things that believers around the world have to cope with. Um, nobody's coming knocking on my door asking if I'm the pastor of one of the pastors of Redeemer Fellowship. I don't know that any of us is worried about where our next meal is coming from. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't have enemies. When I think about enemies, I'd have to say that I really don't have anyone who's literally trying to harm me. But that doesn't mean there aren't, there aren't things that keep me up at night or that can keep me up at night. There are more figurative enemies, enemies of my peace of mind. The question to ask is, who or what do I fear? Loss of health? Financial reversals? Harm to someone I love? When our kids were younger, that really bothered me, the idea that one of them could be harmed, uh, even in an accident. Uh, used to, I could almost reduce myself to tears just thinking about that possibility. Natural disasters, how about that is something to lose sleep over? How about those living in Louisiana right now? On this anniversary date of Hurricane Katrina. Whether my enemies are literal or figurative, I need to ask myself whether I have the same confidence in God as David did here in Psalm 27. Because after all, I have the same God. And we all need to ask ourselves how we move these questions out of the hypothetical and into the real. Maybe a good place to start is by reflecting on what my knee-jerk response is when I am facing a threat to my mental or emotional equilibrium. Do I immediately take it to the Lord? Or do I obsess over it, losing peace of mind, maybe sleep, for as long as it takes to realize the Lord's got this? I confess that's not always my first thought. Or do, I, do we only come to that place after the crisis is over and it's a matter of, eh, the Lord had this all along. <clears throat> How much different would it be if we live, as I said, in some places of the world where just being identified as a Christian is dangerous? Another thing we can do, if I may be permitted a reference to last week's message, is to remember... By the way, my grandson was counting. If you were here last week, I asked my grandson to count how many times I said that, and I thought he had forgotten that, but he was counting. He counted 36. <clears throat> but we need to remember how the Lord has acted in the past. This will help you and me to have a robust confidence in the Lord and his ever-present protection. Consider the words of Asaph in Psalm 77, and I love this psalm too. Pull it up on your phone if you want, or open your Bible if you are old-fashioned like me. At Psalm 77, Asaph is kind of complaining to the Lord, and he's, he's facing some trouble, some, something that's robbing him of sleep. And he's wondering, has God forgotten to be gracious? That's verse 9. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Verse 10. Then I said, 
I will appear, appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So when Asaph is in a, a, a hard place, even you know, fears are, are attacking him, he's beginning to doubt that God has remembered his promises. And then he says, well, wait a minute. The God I know is a God who has always been faithful. And he reminds himself of all the times and all the ways in which that has been evident to him. In the midst of his anguish of soul, Asaph chooses to remember the deeds of the Lord, his wonders of old. The God who is the stronghold of my life, Psalm 27, is able to sustain me through the fears that wage war against me, and he has a long track record of doing just that. In verse 4, we have one of the most famous declarations in the Psalter. Here is David's one thing. Read that again. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I confess to having long struggled with this verse. How, I've wondered, could that really be the one thing? More to the point, how can that become my one thing? Or more nearly that, at any rate. And here I, I, I would commend to you a book by a man named Sam Storms entitled, One Thing. And it's a whole book essentially based on this verse. I have a copy of it somewhere. I couldn't find it in the last two days. I've lent it out a couple of times. Maybe the last time I lent it out, it didn't make its way back. But if you get a chance to get your hands on a copy of that, you might find it very helpful. And there's... <clears throat> so I'm pondering this verse and seeing the deficit in my own heart is that really my one thing? And how could it be more my one thing? And then I found some help in the ESV study Bible. Here's what it says. House of the Lord, temple, tent, and sacrifices. Those are all terms taken from the psalm. Uh, later in, in the, over the next several verses show that these verses focus on public worship. They view unhindered access to God's presence in worship as the best of all gifts. This is the place of true delight and sa true safety. Putting verse 4 into this context has, has been huge for me. 
Long I have wondered why I felt it so much easier to sense the presence of the Lord in worship with the people of God than in my private times of worship. And the answer to that question, at least a big part of it, is that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. We are made to live in community. Not that God is inaccessible for someone who worships privately, but the ordinary means of the experience consist in coming to God's house with God's people. This idea is also present, I believe, in the psalm Pastor Jonathan preached on two weeks ago, Psalm 23, where verse 6 tells us, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord echoes Psalm 27.4. So that was a comfort to me. It's still a challenge to have my one thing be more closely connected with David's one thing. But David, what, what the ESV study Bible is saying is that he wasn't depending on himself alone to generate that passion for the Lord. That when we're with God's people, when we're singing together, praying together, worshiping together, yeah, that's how, how it's supposed to be. In verse 8, the command, seek my face, is according, again, to the ESV Study Bible, addressed to more than one person, underscoring the value of worship in community with the family of God. And my, may I say here that as thankful as we are for the technology that enables us to experience worship virtually, we all know, don't we, that it just isn't the same. Preaching to the choir, you're here, no aspersions cast on anybody who's not here, but don't we long for the day when this pandemic is behind us and we can really be together. Uh, that's what, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons we should be praying for an end to this pandemic. After all, if, as 1 Peter 2.5 says, we believers are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, then we are now the new temple where God dwells. Thus it probably isn't a stretch to connect verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to the idea that we believers will in glory experience a oneness unlike anything we have known, known here on earth. And it will be glorious. The last half of, psalm, of the psalm, verses 7 to 12, <clears throat> is addressed to the Lord. Remember hearing, recently hearing somebody say the psalms are the only places in Scripture where the writer of Scripture is speaking to God. Now, not every psalm is like that, but it's kind of a unique aspect of uh, many of the psalms, and this psalm is one, this second half. shows that the psalmist is earnest about seeking the Lord. He again appeals for deliverance from enemies and asks God to show his faithfulness, which is even more reliable than he could expect even from his own parents. Did you catch that verse? Verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. I, 
I don't know if that was personally true of David. I don't have no reason to believe that it was, but I do know that many believers have been forsaken by the father and mother, and the Lord takes us in, brings us into his family. What a comfort. Verses 13 and 14, end of the psalm, express his confidence that his future is secure. To know he will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living is so much more comforting than the squishy, wishful thinking we hear so often when somebody dies, oh, he or she is in a better place, which is often said without regard to the spiritual state of the dearly departed. Those who belong to Christ have a sure hope, not because of some universalist view that God takes everyone who isn't a mass murderer to heaven. Rather, we can know that we will be with with God for eternity because Jesus lived and died and was raised again for his own. And it is because it, it is his death that we remember each week this should stun us. This should stun us that the God of the universe came down from heaven, became a man, allowed himself to be put through what he went through, ultimately torture and death. He didn't need to die. We needed him to die in our place, and he did. We don't get what we deserve but what Jesus deserved. He didn't get what he deserved, but he enables us to get that. So as we come to the table, and I would ask the ushers to begin distributing the elements, we need to take a little time in the privacy of our own thoughts examine our own hearts, not to find something in there that would be worthy of God to declare us innocent, but that recognizes our guilt before God. And thanks God, thanks Jesus for the fact that that there is now no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus.